I'm your health coach, Melissa Lee. Here at Thriving with Nourishment Health, I provide women with the resources to reclaim fertility and celebrate periods through the lens of functional medicine. It is time to empower ourselves with natural solutions over band-aid medicines. We will get to the root cause of symptoms to see the bigger picture. Let us find the ability to heal ourselves, get back to Mother Nature, and live in a healthier world. Hi everyone! Today I would like to introduce you to Lisa Henderson-Jack. She's a certified fertility awareness educator who teaches women how to chart their menstrual cycles, for natural birth control, conception, and overall health. She's the author of The Fifth Vital Sign and debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children. Lisa hosts the amazing Fertility Friday podcast that uncovers the connection between menstruation, fertility, and overall health. I'm very excited to welcome Lisa to the podcast today. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you because she is amazing. She really knows uh, all about charting and I can't wait for her to share with all of you why the menstrual cycle is such an important thing in our life and why all doctors should pay attention to the way uh, we bleed every single month. So can you just let the listeners know who are you and what are you all about? Well, thank you for that. I really specialize in women's health and fertility, um, specifically in the area, of course, of fertility awareness, fertility awareness charting. And so in my practice, I help women to have the alternative to hormonal birth control. So an effective option to avoid pregnancy that's non-hormonal, if that's what they're looking for, for women who are trying to conceive to get a better sense of exactly what's happening in their cycle and the best time to time. But it goes a lot deeper than that because the menstrual cycle is a sign of health. And we can look at it as the fifth vital sign, meaning that if your menstrual cycle is off, it can actually give you information about what's happening health-wise in your body. So um, that's really what I'm about and the message that I'm sharing, because often, as you know, the menstrual cycle is often just looked at as like, it, it, it only matters if you're trying to have a baby. And if you're not currently trying to have a baby, it, it's like we don't even care and we don't even think that it matters. So hopefully we can change that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully uh, listeners will be inspired by, oh, there's something here every month. It's not just me going through all this pain and all these mood swings. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about fertility awareness charting because I think a lot of women, they see birth control as like something external. So is this the same as rhythm method or what is actually, what's, what's charting all about? Well, that's a really great question. I think for a lot of people, when they hear fertility awareness, they think that it's basically the rhythm method. So for anyone who doesn't know what the rhythm method is, it's an actual method, uh, but it involves math. So what you're doing is you're paying attention to your cycle. So you're looking at how many days, you know, from your first, the first day of your period to the next, the last day before your next one. And um, you're basically taking an average of those cycles and then you're um, estimating your future date of ovulation based on that. So with the rhythm method, it, you know, it was a method many, many years ago that was promoted. But the challenge is that if your cycles aren't perfectly regular all the time, um, it's not going to work because you can't predict ovulation. 
So modern fertility awareness-based methods are not the rhythm method because what you're doing is you're not guessing when you're going to ovulate and basing your behavior on that. <laughs> you're actually learning to understand and interpret three main signs of fertility. So um, I teach a version of the symptothermal method, meaning that you're looking at the symptoms, your cervical fluid and your cervical position and how they change throughout the cycle. And you're also looking at your basal body temperature. Uh, so when you look at these signs, what you can really do is identify which days of your cycle are fertile, which days of your cycle are not fertile, and then you can make decisions based on that. And the, you know, another main difference between modern fertility awareness-based methods and say the rhythm method is that there's a lot of scientific research to back it up. So when we're talking about changes in cervical fluid and cervical position, these are changes that are governed by the hormonal changes that happen in our menstrual cycle. This is biology. It is mm -hmm. basic general understanding of how our bodies work and it's founded in science. Uh, and so there are, you know, peer reviewed published studies on the effectiveness of fertility awareness-based methods showing up to 99.4% efficacy, meaning that point, you know, this is a really high effectiveness rate that is um, equivalent to hormonal methods. Mm -hmm. So when you learn to do it right, you can have the same effectiveness as a hormonal method. So question for you here. Uh, someone asked me, oh, is this method um, considered natural? And do I not need to have external forms of birth control if I really do it right? That's a really good question. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a really great question because it really, um, as women, one of the things that I was taught growing up that most of the women I know were also taught was that you could get pregnant on every day of your cycle, <laughs> which is not actually true. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I learned that in, that in junior high. And when you learn that as a young woman, it just leaves you to be terrified because they don't teach you about your cycle and how it works and how your fertility works and you know what would make you fertile, et cetera. They just tell you that you're fertile all the time. So then you're just terrified of pregnancy all the time. Mm. So often when women first discover fertility awareness, you kind of get it. You're like, okay, so you're saying that there's only a small window of fertility. You're saying that I'm not fertile every single day. I can figure it out by paying attention to my mucus. And you're saying that there are, are parts of my cycle where I could have sex and not get pregnant. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of women, they don't, they can't process what I'm saying. So they're like, yeah, but you'd still use a condom, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally <laughs> get that. Withdrawal, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. put, just to put it out there, you know, for example, after ovulation, the egg only survives for 12 to 24 hours if it's not fertilized. And there's a series of events that, that, that occur that make it impossible for you to conceive. Um, the sperm can't survive in your body. You know, mm -hmm. your cervix closes. They can't gain access to your uterus. So from the time you ovulate until the, the time of your next cycle, it's impossible to get pregnant. This is bi mm -hmm. biology. So you could have sex with you know, a man and mm -hmm. he could ejaculate inside of your body and you could not get pregnant. Um, but I recognize that it's a, a big stretch and I wouldn't recommend for you to just jump yeah. right after listening to this podcast episode um, because you know, the main difference between fertility awareness and say hormonal methods is that it's entirely user dependent. <laughs> mm -hmm. So like if you take the birth control pill, you're taking a hormone, like a synthetic hormone that is changing your body 
I, the way that I talk about it is it makes your body resistant to sperm. So you can have all the sex, but it doesn't cause you to get pregnant. Um, so it's physically changing your body. But when you're using fertility awareness, you're not changing your body. So there is a period of time when you can get pregnant. You have to modify your behavior. So first you have to understand the method. You have to understand mm -hmm. the rules and how to use it, the science behind it and all of that. Um, you have to be motivated to do it. You have to want to do it. Um, and then you have to actually do it correctly. So there's a, there's a difference, right, in terms right. of how, how, how the method works. Yeah, so um, I think that part about, you know, the important part about, you know, after ovulation, the egg only survives 12 to 24 hours, and it's physically, like, it's impossible, you know, to get pregnant. I feel like that is really a big stretch for women to understand. Um, and it's so important to realize that we're only fertile six days of the month. Am I right? Six days? Yeah. Um, so what's interesting about mm -hmm. the way that the female body works is that, so mother nature is way smarter than us. Outside of the fertile window, so we, we have a short fertile window. And from a scientific perspective, we are only fertile for a maximum of six days per cycle. The reason for that is because as you approach ovulation, your ovaries start making estrogen. Mm -hmm. And that estrogen stimulates your cervix to start making cervical fluid. So for women who have noticed this, you might notice what looks like creamy white hand lotion. And you might notice that when you're going to the bathroom, when you're wiping yourself or in your underwear, uh, you might notice like a clear, raw, egg white type fluid. So you can stretch it between your fingers. It forms a thread. Um, and you might notice it hanging out of you <laughs> when you go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. or you might notice it on your underwear or when you're wiping yourself. And you know, some women will just find that at a certain point in their cycle, they wipe and it feels really slippery. So that is your cervical fluid and cervical fluid can keep sperm alive for up to five days. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of us have heard, oh my goodness, if you have sex, the sperm can live in your body for five days, but it can't live in your body for five days, like all the time. It's mm -hmm. only during your fertile window when you have the cervical mm -hmm. fluid um, that your body's actively producing. And that is what actively keeps sperm alive. And so when you look at the research, it only keeps sperm alive for up to five days. So you are then, you know, fertile from that scientific perspective for, you know, during that window when you're making the cervical fluid um, plus the day of ovulation. Um, and so I think the first step, because it's a huge stretch when you first hear it, especially if this is the first time you're hearing mm -hmm. that, because it goes against everything you were ever taught. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how could all of these school teachers and... <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've spoken to many doctors who in med school, mm -hmm. they didn't learn mm -hmm. this either. So it's like, how can he go through med school? And, you know, so this, there's a bigger, you know, issue with women not being educated about our bodies, right? Like, this is a, obviously a bigger issue. But the first part in terms of getting your head around it is to start educating yourself, you know, pick up a copy of my book, pick up a copy of taking charge of your fertility, start understanding the science. Mm -hmm. The second part is to start paying attention. So start charting. If you're interested in this topic, then you might want to start charting. Once you start to see the physical changes that happen in your body around ovulation and then how it changes, you can, so your cervix actually changes in position. It changes in height, in the mm -hmm. firmness, in even the tilt, in the position. And you can tell how your cervix feels when you're fertile versus when you have ovulated your cervical fluid it's flowing as you approach ovulation after ovulation you your ovaries start to produce progesterone and that shuts your cervical production cervical mucus production down so um when you're charting you'll see oh i have the cervical fluid at just one time in my cycle that's interesting and then mm -hmm. it just goes away 
yeah, exactly. Right. And then when, when you're charting your temperature, you, mm-hmm. your temperature rises after ovulation. So you have these physical signs in your body of when you're fertile mm-hmm. and when you're not. So, you know, it's one thing to try to understand it mentally, but it's another thing to experience this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just giving a summary, you're saying that we should pay attention to our bodies and physically see and touch and all that. And then, you know, after a few cycles, we would know when we're ovulating, if we're ovulating, um, based on like three signs, including cervical mucus, cervical position, and monitoring our temperatures. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So, um, so what about women with PCOS? So, you know, I have PCOS also, um, but my periods are more regular now. But what about people who have irregular periods? How do they actually chart? Like, is it really troublesome is it impossible for them to do it and how do they go about it i love that question because Mm. there's this idea that if your cycles aren't perfectly regular and normal that you can't Mm -hmm. chart or you can't use fertility awareness so a a typical pcos cycle that so for a woman who's somewhere on her pcos journey and she hasn't yet gotten to the point that her cycles are a bit more regulated what a typical pcos cycle looks like um, it's typically on the longer side Mm-hmm. often five days or more or longer and what can happen is when you're when you're charting and tracking your cervical fluid it's not uncommon to see say multiple patches of cervical fluid so I've heard women say things who know about charting they'll say I you know I ovulate multiple times so no right. um you're what what's happening typically in a PCOS cycle so PCOS is characterized as you know by you know inflammation insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, often an increased androgen production. So there's a lot that's happening. And so many women with PCOS, um, they're not able to process sugar in the same way as everybody else. And that causes a great deal of stress in the body, increases cortisol Mm -hmm. levels. And what that has a negative impact on ovulation and ovulatory function. So what you often see in a PCOS cycle are multiple attempts at ovulation. So your body Mm. starts gearing up for ovulation, your ovaries start to make estrogen, you start to Mm. see some cervical fluid, and then it backs off. Right. And then you see it again, you see some cervical fluid, okay, I'm going to ovulate this time, backs off. And so, you know, if your cycle is 52 days, you might see Mm. multiple patches of cervical fluid um, until you finally ovulate. So until you finally have those several days of cervical fluid, and then you actually ovulate. Um, So charting with PCOS is certainly possible. Um, You know, I've worked with many women that have PCOS. Obviously, it can be challenging because when you learn about charting, you learn Mm -hmm. about a perfect, you know, quote unquote, day cycle. And this is what's supposed to happen. And so when you have PCOS and you have to kind of see your body gearing up for ovulation multiple times, if that's the pattern that you're seeing, of course, Mm -hmm. that can be challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, But depending on, so for instance, if a woman's trying to avoid pregnancy, and she's using fertility awareness, of course, it's, it's frustrating and challenging because you have many more days that you have to consider potentially fertile. You don't know when you see that cervical fluid that your body may be gearing up to ovulation or not. You can't predict that. So you have to take it at face value. If you see cervical fluid, you have to consider yourself fertile. Mm. So for many women with PCOS, it means that they have a much longer period of time in their cycle where they have to use protection. Right. Um, I think the big 
point you touched upon there is predicting. A lot of us feel like, oh, you know, I ovulated on day 28. I should be ovulating soon. Or we use an app that kind of predicts it. So I just want to drive home the point that uh, fertility awareness is not about predicting, right? It's just about monitoring every single day and not trying to like forecast or anticipate when we're going to ovulate. Um, so what about women who are consistently kind of bleeding, you know? So I, I know PCOS women, uh, even myself back then, we have like prolonged periods of like 40, 50 days. Um, do you advise, you know, kind of checking it out with the doctor and also continue to chart or, you know, what's happening there? Well, charting is always helpful. It's helpful to have a record of what's happening. And even if you are having an issue, a health issue mm -hmm. or a fertility issue, it's helpful to have that record as you make improvements in your overall health and your cycles and your fertility, then you'll also be able to kind of look back on that and see how far you've come. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the most important aspect of just this, the question is we have to know what normal is. <laughs> um, yeah. So a normal period lasts mm -hmm. anywhere from three to seven days. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then it's done. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really, really important. If you're experiencing, um, you know, spotting before, it's very, very common. Many women experience a couple of days of spotting before their period, but that's still not optimal. Um, mm -hmm. Because when you're spotting before your period, it means that, you know, potentially there's something happening. So potentially the something's interfering with the progesterone and it's not able to kind of sustain that lining until you're supposed to be getting your period. Um, and similar, I mean, many women may experience a little bit of spotting around ovulation. That's not, that's not uncommon, but absolutely not okay to be like bleeding for weeks straight. Um, so, you know, best case scenario, it may just be a little bit of a hormonal imbalance, or um, I've seen women spot in response to food sensitivities. Uh, so when they consume food, but um, worst case scenario, it could be something as serious as uterine cancer. So it's really important to know what's normal and what's not. And, you know, um, Many times, even if you are concerned and you do go to the doctor, those concerns may be minimized. But just if you, so what you described, like bleeding all the time, go to the doctor. Yeah. Like okay. don't hesitate. Yeah. And if your doctor is not listening or is not like, mm -hmm. so your doctor should then be doing an ultrasound and you should potentially be getting like both the internal and the external and they should be doing testing to just rule out the bad stuff. You want to rule right. out anything that could actually be physically wrong with you. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're not able to find a physical uh, issue, then you have to kind of look at other, other reasons and, you know, health-wise, lifestyle factors, et cetera. But absolutely, like, don't hesitate. Mm -hmm. Go to your doctor. And if your doctor is hesitant to give you an ultrasound or whatever, find another doctor. Like, someone mm -hmm. has to do a test. You have to get checked out. If you were randomly bleeding from your eyeball, you would go to the doctor. So we can't just think, oh, because it's our uterus, uteri. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Prolonged bleeding for a month and a half is definitely not Absolutely normal. not. It could be very serious. So it's, and someone has to say that out loud. It does, it's not always very serious, but it could yeah. be very serious. Like, yeah, I agree. You should go to the doctor. Yeah, totally. Um, so in your book, I noticed that you have a whole chapter on cervical mucus, which is really interesting because um, I think, you know, we're not aware of it or 
we think it's like sometimes we think it's like infection or we don't know what it is um could you enlighten us a little bit more about cervical mucus <laughs> especially the part about oh it can actually change the sperm's morphology and motility like that's incredible to me i didn't know it had such power <laughs> Well, so cervical fluid, I mean, that's part of the reason why I have an entire chapter, and it's a fairly mm-hmm. long chapter too, about cervical fluid. And it's because, I mean, this information is, it's biology. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very, it's, it's information that we should know. I remember, I distinctly remember biology class learning a ton about my ear and eyes. So I feel that there's no reason why we shouldn't have the same detail about our cervix. Like, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's really understated the role of the female body, even in reproduction, even though we're the ones that conceive and carry. Often when you think of fertilization, you think of the valiant sperm swimming to whatever. And you, the, the message that we get about the, that process is it's very like male driven or something like these sperm mm-hmm. are swimming, whatever. So what actually happens is that our cervical fluid, as I mentioned, is produced as we approach ovulation. So mother nature is inherently smarter than us. And so the whole system is designed so that the sperm are in the right place by the time you reach ovulation. So it's worth noting that we produce cervical fluid, you know, during the several days prior to ovulation so that the sperm are already in the reproductive tract by the time ovulation happens. So they're kind of like waiting for the egg to drop. Mm -hmm. Um, And so cervical fluid, it's, it's truly amazing. It changes the pH of your vagina. It makes your vagina a hospitable place for sperm. It rapidly transports the sperm into your cervical crypts. Uh, so it, it's not the sperm valiantly swimming. Our cervical mucus have um, these amazing channels that shuttle sperm very quickly into our cervical mm-hmm. crypts. And then it's actually our uterus that has smooth muscle contractions that help the sperm to go through the uterine cavity and into the fallopian tube. So it's our body that right. where they need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, cervical fluid has this really interesting capacity to filter out abnormal sperm. So even if you take the healthiest man alive with the most amazing sperm parameters, mm-hmm. the vast majority of his sperm are abnormal. Mm, okay. And abnormal so, being they can't necessarily right. swim properly or even have malshapen heads, no head, malshapen tails, no tail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And that, that's, you know, forming the whole topic of male infertility, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's just like, oh yeah, sperm is all the same. They're like, you know, it's really like high high risk, as in like a high chance to conceive because women think that all sperm are like equal and they have like equal strength to get up there. But now you're saying that what, like most of them are actually abnormal? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, <laughs> and I'm not trying to make light of it, but yeah. um, in my programs, one of, the, one of the things that I do when I'm talking about sperm is I'll actually pull up an image of, um, so like a dyed image of sperm, mm-hmm. um, obviously blown up. And so we think of what sperm looks like, that's what the normal sperm would be. But then I show them the morphologically norm, uh, damaged mm-hmm. sperm, which for many, yeah, yeah like, I'll, like I said, most of them are, most of the sperm look like that. So uh, okay. It's very alarming and jarring. So what's really neat about it, though, is that Mother Nature also smarter than us. So mm-hmm. our cervical fluid has ways of screening out abnormal sperm. So we have a type of mucus that is a bit thicker. So sperm mm-hmm. that don't have normal motility, they can't actually swim through. So it kind of collects the sperm that can't, that are not motile and prevents them from making their way through. Mm-hmm. 
And then um, we also have in our mucus, uh, there's a type of mucus that contains these little oval structures, these microscopic oval structures that actually attach themselves to morphologically abnormal sperm and prevent them from moving forward. So we have this whole collection filtration system that mm -hmm. prevents the poor morphology and poor motility sperm from getting through. So the first and foremost, it's like nature's screening tool. So all the like, for lack of a better word, crappy sperm, mm -hmm. they get held back. So only the normal ones kind of make their mm -hmm. way through the reproductive right. tract and get their shot at fertilizing an egg. Um, and there's more. <laughs> <laughs> there's so, there's so much more. We definitely cannot go through all of that. Um, quick question. So all of the normal ones that go, you know, get passed through the screening process, um, do they actually get stored? Because I know ovulation is only only one day, but then there's like a window. So do they actually get stored? You know, in the crypts. Yeah. So as I mentioned, one of the um, functions of cervical mucus is to rapidly transport sperm directly mm -hmm. into the cervical crypt. So the cervix is the base of the uterus. It's what, um, it's what uh, dilates when you have a baby. And so in that base of the uterus, there are these little folds, you know, right. in, in the sides and the walls. And those folds are called our cervical crypt. So that's where the mucus comes from. But you know, once you have sex in your fertile window, they also serve as a reservoir, which is really interesting. So in your fertile window, when your you know, partner ejaculates inside of your body and you have cervical fluid, it draws the sperm into the crypts and it actually holds them there. So it, they kind of, there's, the doors close, you could say. Mm -hmm. And then as you approach ovulation, once your estrogen levels are rising to a certain point, um, it stimulates the release of the sperm in there. Mm. So it sounds crazy. I feel like it sounds like a science fiction movie, but it's right yeah. there in the research yeah. and the science that this is the function of our cervical fluid and our cervical crypts. When a man ejaculates, the sperm are not yet capable of fertilization. So in order for sperm to be capable of fertilizing an egg, they have to go through a chemical process called capacitation. And so one of the functions of our cervical fluid is that when the sperm swims through the cervical fluid, it actually changes the enzyme, you know, it, the chemical reaction change happens in the sperm itself to allow it to become capable of fertilizing an egg. So um, you can Google capacitation and kind of read it for yourself. But again, our cervical fluid makes it possible for these sperm to fertilize eggs. So um, I mean, there's, there's always more that we could talk about, but I feel like those are some of the most interesting mm -hmm. aspects of cervical fluid. And so when you're trying to conceive, then it stands to reason that the best days to have sex would be the days that you see your cervical fluid. So for anyone who's listening, especially with PCOS, we talked about how you may have multiple patches and it can get a bit frustrating. But if you have like a, a 50 day cycle, for example, yeah. then it makes it really hard because the fertile window is still only six days from a scientific standpoint. Mm -hmm. So if you're shooting in the dark, then obviously having a fertile window of six days in a 50 day cycle, how are we, it would really be kind of random if you're able to just, you know, shoot that. So um, when you track your cervical fluid and you have an understanding of how crucial a role it plays in natural conception, then you can, you know, pay attention to your body and have sex. If you see the clear, stretchy fluid, that's when you have the sex. I see. Yeah, it takes off a lot of pressure when you put it like that. Like you're not just, you know, guessing and like your odds are so low. Um, Okay, I like that you said that about, you know, for women with PCOS, um, because we also have 
a higher chance of an ovulatory infertility. So, you know, we have like really low chances of fertility. Um, do you have, do you see like a lot of PCOS women who charted their cycles and they eventually know their bodies so much that they eventually could have a baby? Well, I mean, absolutely. I would say that it's really important to know that a pregnancy is possible in any cycle that ovulation takes place. Mm-hmm. So even if you have, the, the, one of the challenges for women with PCOS is that when you have a longer cycle, that means you have fewer opportunities to try per year. So, I mean, one of the characteristics of PCOS is having fewer than five cycles a year, um, depending on how controlled uh, your cycles are. Mm-hmm. So from a very just basic common sense standpoint, if you have 12 cycles a year, then you have 12 ovulatory events, like you have 12 opportunities to conceive. If you only have six cycles a year, well, you know, that's half the, the chances. So I would say that it's like, you know, to some extent, it's a myth that women with PCOS can't get pregnant. Mm-hmm. There are more challenges. Right. And for women, I mean, for all women, but in particular, women with PCOS who do have long, irregular cycles, it's, it's critical, at least, to be getting the timing right. Mm-hmm. Timing is not everything, but for some women, just getting the timing right is what finally gets them pregnant. Yeah, that's interesting that you would say that. Um, so what about, so we're talking, you know, about charting and all that. What about if someone has like a poor lifestyle, poor diet, like would this affect the charting as well? I'm guessing so, right? Because it affects our whole like hormonal balance and all that. Well, I mean, when you think of your menstrual cycle as a vital sign for Mm -hmm. a woman who has, you know, regularly her, so a normal cycle can range in length Mm -hmm. anywhere from about 24 to about 35 days. And when your cycle is regularly outside of that 35 day range, then it is a sign that there's something wrong. So for women with PCOS who have their, whose cycles are long and irregular, Mm -hmm. uh, what's important to recognize is, I mean, PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, one of the kind of one of the ideas, even just with the title, with the name of the syndrome, as they've called it, you can get the idea that it's related to ovulation and that it's related to fertility only. But women with PCOS are significantly more likely to develop diabetes. Um, PCOS is a metabolic condition that is, you know, directly related to, as I mentioned, you know, um, insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, inflammation. Um, And so it's really important that we understand that. Uh, A woman's cycle is not only important when she's trying to have a baby, uh, because if this condition is associated with an increased risk of developing diabetes later on in life, then it's actually important to control those factors now. So one of the things that charting can do is through the process of charting and learning about menstrual cycle and learning that there is such a a thing as normal and learning whether your cycles fall Mm -hmm. into that normal or not, is it can prompt you to start to recognize that you can make changes to your diet, your lifestyle, and just overall to improve those parameters normally. So I have supported women in my own practice to normalize the cycle so that instead of having a you know period every 45 days, yeah. they're able to get it down to you know even 35 days, 30 days, like getting it back in line of what it's supposed to be. Nice. And this is just through natural means, right? Like just changing diet and um all that 
Well, I mean, it, it really depends on the woman. So in my practice, I do encourage my clients to work in conjunction with other health practitioners. Um, and so, for example, if you, ident if you understand kind of the underlying process that contributes to delayed ovulation, so inflammation, glucose intolerance, yeah. insulin resistance, right? Like if you understand that, then um, basically you can think of it this way. Many women with PCOS, their bodies just don't handle, um, you know, simple carbohydrates in the same way that everyone else's does. For them, it really causes a metabolic problem that could make them more likely to develop diabetes. So if you, you know, organize the diet in such a way that you're not constantly you know, raising blood sugar, that you're stabilizing blood sugar, that you're consuming enough protein, that you're combining it with um, healthy fats, and that you're also minimizing the high glycemic carbohydrates that, you know, skyrocket blood sugar all the time. Many women find that by making certain changes like that, and just adjusting their diet to what their body is, how their body is responding, that can have a huge positive impact on the cycle. Um, and then in addition to that, there are different practices and of course supplementation that can be done to sensitize the body to insulin and to just overall improve the function of your cycles and your fertility. I like the idea of charting when you say that because we can see like we can see when we write it down how it actually really changes when we change you know our lifestyle. Um, and then that I think it's a really good kind of evidence-based or more you know uh, an approach that i think women would appreciate more um you said in your book that the liver is really good as a source of nutrition for every everyone you know for like egg health and sperm health um can you touch a little bit more about that like what kind of liver or just any kind of liver um well so i, I talk about i do talk about liver quite a bit yeah, quite a bit. Uh, as a source oh, of nutrition. Oh, about that. Yeah. <laughs> I have an entire uh, chart and table on it. But when you look at, so again, when you look at the research of, you know, what is essential in order for normal egg development, you know, what nutrition, what nutrients are involved in the process of that our body goes through in developing eggs, what nutrition is required in the process that the male body goes through to make sperm. And what nutrients are required to build a healthy baby in order to sustain optimal fetal development and all of those types of things? What nutrients are optimal for a healthy menstrual cycle? Um, I mean, so when you think about it specifically related to fertility, pregnancy, and all those things, I mean, you need iron, you need vitamin B12, you need vitamin B6, you need choline, you need selenium, you need zinc, um, you need vitamin A. So vitamin A is essential for um, for follicular production, like to, to make healthy eggs. It's an essential part of the process. And uh, similarly with the process of, um, of spermatogenesis, vitamin A is essential in order for that process to take place normally. So it's really interesting because all of those nutrients are contained in a high quantity in liver. So whether that's beef liver or duck liver, turkey, chicken, um, you know, whichever type of liver suits your fancy, they have different kind of um, right. quantities of these different nutrients. Uh, but 
that's one of the questions that I often ask is like, what did people do 300 years ago before Whole Foods? Like, what, what did people do? Because vitamins didn't exist 300 years ago. So how were people getting their nutrients? And so if you draw from the wisdom of ancestral cultures and match it with modern science, so look at the foods that traditional cultures consumed specifically when they were planning to conceive, when couples would get married and those types of things, they were often put on certain diets and given certain foods. If you look at the nutrients in those foods and match it with the modern science and what we know is required for optimal development, uh, sperm, egg, baby, all of those things, then you really start to see that it matches up. And so, especially for those women um, and men who, I mean, there's always, there is a place for supplementation when you have a, a nutrient deficiency. It is important to work with a practitioner to identify nutrient deficiencies and correct those. And sometimes that does require supplementation. There's nothing wrong with, you know, supplementation as a concept. But many of us want to get as much nutrients as we can from food. And if you take, you know, an ounce of liver and you compare it to an ounce of like kale, um, kale contains a lot of nutrition, but pound for pound, you're going to get far more nutrition from eating a small amount of liver. And so by just incorporating that um, and kind of starting to learn about where these nutrients come from, you can significantly increase your micronutrient intake. What if someone is vegetarian or vegan? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. It, it, it kind of depends on what their cycles are like, mm -hmm. what their overall health is like. Uh, if they're doing um, you know, a nutrient panel, if they are deficient in any nutrients, and also, you know, what their goals are, where they are in life. Um, so I can't say that I think that there's one particular diet that a person should follow from birth until death. Right, yeah. Children have different nutrient requirements. Um, you know, young adults, as they're growing mm -hmm. through puberty, have different nutrient requirements. Um, and women who are trying to have babies, and men who are trying to optimize their sperm parameters, have different nutritional requirements. So if you are, say, like vegetarian or vegan, and you are a man with, you know, poor sperm parameters, then you want to ask the question of where are you getting your vitamin A? So vitamin A retinol does not exist in plant foods. Beta carotene exists in plant foods. And there's a limited ability to convert from beta carotene to retinol. So you can't get all of that from um, just only animal foods. So um, again, with the menstrual cycle, when you look at it as a vital sign, the menstrual cycle is what ultimately, in, in my practice, is what makes the final call. If you are eating whatever type of diet you're eating and your hormones are, are you know, perfectly healthy, you've had your nutrient panels done, you're sufficient you know, in iron and B12 and all these nutrients, your cycles are completely healthy, your temperatures are normal, um, and you're conceiving easily, then we wouldn't be having a conversation. But if you are struggling with mm -hmm. hormonal issues and different things, at some point, you just have to ask the question of, could my diet be contributing? Um, am I getting enough healthy fat? So, uh, you know, one thing that's really important to note is that in order to have a healthy menstrual cycle, you have to produce estrogen, <laughs> progesterone, testosterone, mm -hmm. you have to produce cortisol. All of these hormones are derived from cholesterol. So for a man, in order to make healthy sperm, he has to be making sufficient levels of testosterone. So we derive our steroid hormones directly from cholesterol. So if your diet doesn't contain any animal fat and you have a hormonal issue, 
then at some point you might have to be asking, do I need to give my body more of these raw materials that it needs to make these hormones? If your hormone levels are fine, we didn't, we're not having a conversation because your hormone levels are fine. If you're conceiving yeah. easily, we don't have to have this conversation because you're conceiving easily. So these are, this is, you know, it's hard. It's very hard with, it's a very big topic and there's a lot of, there's it, a lot of uh, underlying, <laughs> you know, motivation and, yeah, I know some people have really strong sentiments to their diet. It's really important to drive home the fact that our diets should be flexible. And if you, you know, if someone really wants to conceive, then they should really be thinking, okay, maybe I don't need to be so strict about my diet or really depends on their priorities, I would say. Well, and I would say that, I mean, I'm coming from the perspective that when it's, it's a special time in your life when you are trying to have babies. Right. Because I've had two children <laughs> and um, there's really nothing else, no other time in your life as an adult where your nutritional requirements increase so dramatically exactly. in all areas. The, the amount of vitamin A that you require raises significantly during pregnancy. It may be the highest as an adult woman, your requirement for it, your requirement for iron increases significantly. Um, if you look at what the science has to say about iron, we can get iron from vegetables, but it is non-heme iron and it's more difficult for our bodies to absorb versus the heme iron that we get from animal foods. So what's important during this particular time, because as a woman, you want to have a healthy baby, you want to have a healthy pregnancy, and you want to be nutrient replete, you want to be going into pregnancy, giving your baby the best possible chance. So it's important to you know, look at what the science says and be careful where you're getting that information. Um, you know, a lot of individuals who um, discuss different types of diets, like vegetarian, vegan diets, aren't necessarily in that state of trying to conceive. And, um, you know, often people find these diets at different stages of life. So just question the idea that there's one diet for all stages of life. Um, because the the time in your life when you are trying to have babies, it's it's different, and the requirements are different during that period of time. Yeah, and all those nutrients are definitely vital and so important for the health of your baby. And let your cycle be the guide. If your cycle is healthy and normal and optimal, if your if your levels are normal and everything is fine, yeah. Versus if it's not, so that's that's really for me. It always comes back to the cycle. And this showcases why the menstrual cycle should be a fifth vital sign right that's, that's just the evidence of it um, well i mean just the concept of the menstrual cycle is the fifth vital sign that's it's not necessarily a new concept because many health professionals are acknowledging and pushing for the the fifth or for the menstrual cycle to be acknowledged and um there's a document that came out encouraging physicians to look at that, especially in, in, in youth and teenage girls. So it, it just is what it is. If, you're, if your cycle is off, it is indicating that there's something else going on. How do you think uh, the mindset will change when women realize that, oh, they can, you know, they're informed of the natural cycles, they, they can take their power back, um, they can manage their symptoms through natural means. How do you think that you know, the next generation of women will, will change in this mindset? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think that there are, there are so many implications of it. Mm -hmm. And what you said is really important, taking your power back. I think that 
it, it'll be really nice if we can move past this era where the vast majority of women, I mean, in order to just function in society, we are medicated and we think that that's normal. So, I mean, I used the pill when I was a teenager because I didn't have another way to manage my painful periods. Uh, so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with using the pill um, or not, or whatever the case is. But when I talk about the pill, for example, my main issue is that we're not given complete information about it. We're not given complete information about how it affects our cycles, how it affects our you know, future fertility, how it affects our mental health, um, yeah. how it can change our sexual responses. And so, you know, where many, many millions of women are living their lives medicated. Mm -hmm. And I've interviewed and spoken to hundreds of women over the years who have used birth control. And there's certain things that I hear a lot, you know, like I didn't feel like myself when mm -hmm. I came off of it, it felt like a fog lifted. I came off of it and I broke up with my boyfriend because I couldn't stand how he smelled. Um, I changed my career. I realized that I wasn't happy in my relationship. So I left it. So there's a part of me, so this is, I suppose, like less the science part and more just the human part that really does wonder what impact does it have to have an entire, you know, like hundreds of millions of women around the world mm -hmm. medicated every day just so that they can have sex with their partners, just so they can, you know, have a period that doesn't cripple them with pain. Yeah. And we think that this is okay and normal. And what would happen if we supported those women instead to have other options and they were able to stand in their full power without medication physically changing your hormones like suppressing your natural hormone production it changes your emotions and your moods there's lots of evidence and research and women's actual stories on how being medicated so being on hormonal contraceptives for years can impact your chances of experiencing depression and anxiety and all kinds of different things so um, I think that the, for the future generations of women who are just not on medication, I feel like, um, I think that there's a potentially huge shift because you have then hundreds of millions of women standing in their power, doing what they think is important and kind of feeling confident in that. And that's what we need. That's what we need in medicine. That's what we need in naturopathic schools. Like we need to have women and feminine energy in these institutions so that we can really start to prioritize women's health. Yeah. And just get rid of all the myths and ridiculous misinformation about women's bodies. It's a whole new world if you think about it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. I love, I think that's a great way to wrap up this conversation because this is basically why uh, you are putting out putting yourself out there, you're sharing with all these women, you're helping them to transform their health uh, through your book and all your classes. Um, so for the last part of this episode, we're just going to ask you a few fun questions um, based on yourself, your personal life. Um, so let's get started. What's your favorite way of balancing your hormones on a daily basis? <laughs> um, so not a sexy answer. Sleep. Uh, that's uh, over underrated, I would say. Um, so more specifically, getting enough sleep. So over the years, my body needs seven and a half hours. I just wake up after seven and a half hours. I need to sleep in the dark. I need to kind of reduce my light exposure at night so that I, you know what I mean? All of those things 
so that I get a really restful sleep. And when I get really great sleep, it really helps my cycles to normalize and my hormones and I feel better. So number one thing I do to normalize my hormones is sleep. Deep sleep. Yes. What's your uh, favorite exercise routine? Well, I have insanity. Um, by Sean T. <laughs> Shout out to Sean T. Um, but but here's the thing though. Um, I don't like I don't um I don't do extreme, like I don't overdo it. So to be honest with you, um I typically will get up in the morning a couple times a week and do 10 minutes, which I do the warm-up. If anyone has ever done insanity, then you know that the warm up is insane because it's called insanity. So like the warm up is like high intensity interval, 10 minutes I'm drenched in sweat, I you know, stretch, I do my thing and then I take a shower and go about my day. So um and I don't overdo it. I don't exercise 7 days a week. I typically just do like 2 to 3 days. Cool. Short and sweet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um okay, and then what is your favorite way of relaxing? Um, you know, well, it depends. Yeah. Sometimes it'll be like a walk outside because I'm a big fan of nature mm-hmm. and being outside. Um, and sometimes it'll be an Epsom salt bath, which is also fantastic. I love that magnesium, huh? Oh yeah, very like before bed. So see, the it goes back to the sleep thing because then yeah. I do the magnesium. I get my body all relaxed, get the calming effect, and then I yeah. sleep like a rock. Basically, your whole day is just primed for deep sleep, right? Basically, yes. You get the cortisol high, and then yeah. the cortisol will kind of... And don't forget the exercise in the morning, right? Like, yeah, exactly. all that, because then by the nighttime, I'm tired, and et cetera. Yeah, it's all about the sleep. You got it right. Okay, thank you so much for your time today. That was really fun. It was hopefully very informative from our audience. Um, so where can people find your book? By the way, I think everybody should um just let everyone know where they can find you well thank you so much for that this was a lot of fun um and so the book is the fifth vital sign master your cycles and optimize your fertility it's available on amazon and it's available in ebook paperback and audiobook formats which is really fun and you can get the first chapter for free the fifth vital sign book.com um, and for me, if you're into podcasts, I have like over 275 episodes over at Fertility Friday. So you can just type that in your favorite podcast player. Um, and, and as for me, uh, you know, fertilityfriday.com is the main site. You can find me on Instagram at Fertility Friday. I'm always posting something inflammatory, myth-busting stuff on Instagram. So, um, so thank you so much for that. Nice. Um, yes, I am part also of your Fertility Friday Facebook group, right? I think Ooh. you know that. Um, that. That group is amazing because you can ask all your questions. You can be enlightened by someone else's journey. Um, and yeah, so just check out her podcast. It's full of information. I love it too. So thank you so much. Thank you.